Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Brandon Chu from Shopify. Brandon, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Uh, excited to do this. So right now I am uh, the a VP of Product at Shopify, but also the GM of the platform team. So our platform, Shopify's platform, for those of you that don't know, is what allows a whole ecosystem of app developers to build apps for merchants on Shopify, so businesses on Shopify. So we have a pretty thriving ecosystem and app store, which really enables businesses around the world to get like unique features that are maybe applicable for their industry or their location or whatnot. And uh, so I lead a team here, about 200 folks across product engineering, UX, and also all the commercial functions, so like business development, support and operations and whatnot. So it's kind of like a full stack uh, business. And been doing this particular role for about three years at Shopify, but I've been at Shopify for about just under five years total. So, you know, I came into the company as a product uh, manager and was working in various features in the company, but we, we grew really quickly. I joined about 500 people and it's around 6,000 today. So it's been a pretty crazy five years. Uh, so learned a lot in that in the meantime. It's crazy growth. Yeah. yeah. Uh, prior to that, just really, yeah, really quickly prior to that, I was at another Toronto tech company called FreshBooks for three and a half years before that. So they're a growth stage company and they actually, they're actually in like small, the small business world too. And they help uh, service-based businesses like agencies, plumbers, lawyers, people that charge for their time, really manage uh, their whole business with a focus on like the financial and the accounting and invoicing side of it. So did that for about three and a half years, led a bunch of different features and eventually was a product director there doing their mobile apps and their partnerships uh, groups. And then prior to that, I for two and a half years, I was a co-founder of a startup called Toonzy, which helped YouTube musicians monetize their fan bases through fan experiences. So they'd be able to basically let their fan base upvote and downvote different crazy experiences like going skydiving or going on a date on the show uh, before the show with the YouTube artist. And we'd actually enable them to pay for and do the ticketing for those types of things. So this is way back, 2009, 2010 before YouTube even had a, a music category. So it was like very early when like Justin Bieber was becoming famous doing cover music basically. And then prior to that, I was actually in a completely different career. And that's like what I went to school for. I actually went to school in the era where people still wanted to work on Wall Street. <laughs> so I did like capital markets, derivatives and things like that. So I actually was doing like financial modeling for four years at uh, Kraft Foods of all places where we basically build models to forecast literally like how many Oreos North Americans would eat in the next quarter. And, you know, we take those models and uh, allow us to sort of like hedge some of our input costs, uh, like buying sugar and wheat on the commodities markets and stuff like that based on those models. So total career switch along the way. How many Oreos do North Americans eat in a quarter? Uh, Back then it was in the hundreds, hundreds of millions of, uh, of Oreos. So not packs, but Oreos, but it's probably well, well, well over that now. So yeah, I kind of like honed a lot of the, some of my foundations around like financial modeling. I lived in Excel for a while and 
really, honestly, I just got an entrepreneurial bug. Like I always had a, a history in my life of having a lot of different side businesses and things like that, even from when I was a kid and uh, just sort of took a huge leap, knew nothing about tech and decided to just go all in on a crazy music startup in the YouTube space for, for no reason other than I was young and I just wanted to do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, interesting. So um, starting in finance, moving to product management, tell me about that change. Tell me about that jump. What made you do it? Yeah, I think that what's interesting about like that whole world in finance, and it was Kraft Foods, a huge company. It was 120,000 employees. I think it was like within four years, I could, even though I was doing very well in my career there, I had like three promotions in four years, all good stuff. I could kind of see what the rest of my life was because it was just so structured. Like you're in this role now, you're going to work three years there, and then you're going to be in this role. And then at one point you're going to work into a different city and you're going to get marketing experience. And then there's just like this whole path. Right. And I think that just bummed me out a lot. Really it did. It just, it just took away a lot of like that, the learning that I got in those first four years that was really exhilarating and fun. And I think that I started to, in my fourth year there, I just started to get the itch a little bit to just like, even have more creative expressions outside of my job. So I was living downtown in Toronto and uh, an ex-classmate of mine from university actually ended up living and renting in the same apartment building. We just started going to the gym and then lo and behold, well, the other background is him and I did an entrepreneurship class together in, in um, university. And we just decided to start like, hey, why don't we take a look at the music space and see if there's any little business we can build from there. And we just started bootstrapping that on the side. We were like literally full daytime jobs. And then the night we would be working with like developers that we contracted overseas and like basically project managing them, even though we have no idea, like we have no idea what we're doing at this point. And what happened was, even though we we both really didn't know much about entrepreneurship or technology, I think we both were pretty good at selling actually, I think is what we learned. (laughs) So we entered all these startup competitions with no product and like a PowerPoint deck. And we actually had a really good win rate. We won quite a few of them. And at one point we won free office space at a tech accelerator and $10,000. But more importantly, the judges of that competition were all angel investors. And within like a weekend, we had closed like a quarter million dollars on nothing but an idea and a pitch deck. And we quit our jobs basically that Monday. And, and it was really just like, just taking a gamble on ourselves and wanting to, to learn and do new things. That was really the impetus for it. That's pretty awesome, huh? So, you know, putting my entrepreneur hat on and, and along with my product hat, tell me about, you know, managing teams overseas when you're doing that. Did that work well for you? Uh, were you able to leverage that? I see a lot of like, like PMs that are doing side projects, starting little companies struggle a little bit with, uh, you know, getting the right talent, getting them to, to do the right work. How did that work for you? Oh, it was a disaster, complete waste of money. But I, I wouldn't chalk that up to like systemically, that's not a good idea. I think the skills and knowledge I had at the time, it was a waste because I didn't know anything about yeah. technology. Like I literally didn't even know what a line HTML code looked like. And it was only after we like got some seed funding and then we started like recruiting and hiring actual local developers and things like that. And, you know, being a startup, you got to do a lot of stuff yourself. Like that's where I started to really dig in into product in general and to the technical side. So like, I would say it can work, but you need to know the difference between good and bad when it comes to like code quality that's coming in and out, or at least be very precise about what it is that you need developed and know that there's a limit, I think, to 
what gets developed uh, very well from a team that's not in the company and doesn't have all the context and the shared goals. Because so much of like developing good products is iterative. And if you don't have a sense of you know, the, the values or the reason why you're trying to build this company or whatnot, you're just not going to make good micro decisions along the way. So the product never ends up evolving. It just starts to instead try to hit some spec sheet. And that's not really how you make a good product, right? I think like you have to fail into it a bit, experiment a bit and whatnot. So I would say though, like now it could make it work, but I'd, I'd really contain it to like features that are non-ambiguous. Like, oh, we know users need to do X. So like, and that's just going to take a bunch of work. So that's like a good candidate to do it as opposed to, oh, we need to build something, but we can't, we don't really exactly know how it's going to work. That's a, a far worse. Yeah, or maybe prototyping something that you know exactly what you want the prototype to look like, right? Is that exactly. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, you know, going to Shopify, you know, you've kind of climbed that ladder, so to speak, starting out a product, now running all product, GMing a business unit, right? Take me through that process. What were the lessons from it? What advice do you have for people that have kind of that move up within a company? Because we don't see that as often these days. We see a lot of people that their promotions come from jumping somewhere else or just frankly, because people aren't places very long. You know, we see that their career paths tend to move between companies. So talk to yeah. me about stepping through that whole progression at a single company and, and one that's growing as rapidly as Shopify is. Yeah, for sure. And that last part is a huge, you know, a huge piece of the context of the lesson. So I think like a lot of what I'll share is probably only contextual to that type of scale and growth, right? I would say like the first thing is that I was fortunate enough to have had some experience managing PMs and running a larger team at my previous company, FreshBooks. What's interesting is like you talk about career growth in Shopify. I took like a triple demotion actually to come to Shopify. So I was like a product director there and a team of about 40 all in. And I came in as an individual contributor PM. And the reason I was doing that, because uh, a lot of people ask, is Shopify had a better product. It was growing bananas. And the people there were just absolutely incredible. And I just wanted to work with them. And That's so that's impressive. Not a lot of people do that, right? Not a lot of people. I mean, you hear the, you know, get a seat on a rocket ship, right? Don't worry about where it is. It'll all yeah. work out. But a lot of people, whether it's ego, income, or whatever, they, they have difficulty making that decision. Yeah, yeah. And it was... It was difficult and, you know, it was a gamble just like from financially as a gamble, career progression wise, it was a gamble because I was doing pretty well at FreshBooks. But I think another piece of it in my mind also was like, so, you know, my, my history was I was a founder and then, and you know, when you're a founder, you, you're kind of like, I don't even know what I'm really doing, but I'm just doing my best. Then I became an actual PM at FreshBooks and I, I was like, okay, I, could, I guess I could do this role, this job. And I think a lot of it also was I needed to learn can I do it at the highest level? And Shopify was just one of those companies I respected a lot. So a lot of me was like my own, like I want to test my own product abilities by going to a place where I think, you know, the product's better, more complicated, companies growing faster, et cetera. And so it was a bit of like a personal thing that I just wanted to validate. Like, is this all smoke and mirrors or am I actually really good at this product thing? <laughs> like really? So when I came in, it was it's a very small product org. Like Shopify is a very engineering-centric company. The founder, Toby Lutke, is a core contributor to Ruby on Rails back in the day, like super, super technical. At 300, oh, sorry, when I came in and the company was about 500, there was five people with product in their title. Not even product manager. Like someone would have been like product operations or yeah. something or whatever it is. And so it was a very interesting company to join. 
And one of the first meetings that I had, funnily enough, with like the executive team actually was, what is product management? And, and, and it's not because they, they didn't know what it is. So like, there's tons of experience on the exec team, but it's more like the question is really, what is it in the context of Shopify? Because Shopify is a specific culture. It's a specific type of company that has an opinionated view of how it should operate. And, you know, and at the core of some of that is this notion that everyone needs to be a product thinker. We're never going to, you know, classify a small subset of people, the only ones that should or can have an opinion about the product direction or where we should go. So that's how the company was built. It's high opinion, engineers, designers, everyone's expected to have a vision for what they're doing and, and for the product. So, you know, after like a full day offsite, one of the first things that we aligned on was this notion of the, the one liner of what product management did at Shopify was we're here to help the team ship the right thing. And the two phrases there are help the team. <laughs> so you're not a superior to the team. You are an enabler of teams that you work on and ship the right thing is the thing that you're accountable for. And that was sort of the one liner like vision of what we wanted product management to be. So my story of, of growth, you know, in level and all these things at Shopify is really a story of the growth of the product management organization in general. So over the five years, we went from five PMs to 13 the next year to about 30. And then today we're nearing like 150. And, you know, my trajectory throughout has been interesting where, yes, I was a PM on a team. And because there wasn't not a lot of PMs, we were forced to be PMs on many teams. So we did not have this one-to-one -one ratio. And the way that I would grow my impact is to sort of figure out, like I would come in almost on like in a consultant mindset and say like, how can I help this team and us to be really sure that where we're pointing and shooting is like the right direction. But then the beautiful thing about Shopify was that once we all aligned, that's where we're going because everyone's a product thinker like the engineers and designers, they're driving everything. They're driving the builds. They're driving the day-to-day. -day. And so it was an amazing environment where PMs were enabled to not just be like spending 80% of their time managing backlogs in the project execution, but to be able to spend 80% of their time thinking about strategy, about vision, and being able to scale across many teams. So I, that, like I wrote about this in one of my posts, which was like uh, having lever applying leverage as a product manager. And it's like our highest leverage is always going to be like the pure product management thing is always going to be like, where are we going? And like, what are the big steps to get there from a product standpoint? And the early parts of my career here were scaling that across like two, three. And eventually I think I was doing a ratio of like five teams as a single PM. Then we started growing really, really fast and people started falling from the sky. Like there was even up to today, there's every single two weeks, there's 20, 30 people that are joining and you've never met them. And, and back when the office was in the Toronto office was only like 40 people, it's almost literally felt like the company was doubling <laughs> all the time. So it's like, holy crap, like how do you onboard under Shopify? What are we doing? Like all these questions that companies deal with with scale, what the product organization ended up being very critical for was helping to organize like where we're applying all these people and like, what are the bets that we're making? And that's when we started really like scaling the organization when I got a few more reports and things like that. So these are kind of raw memories, like off the top of my head, because it's quite a while now, but um, that's what it felt like at the beginning. It's like, yeah, I imagine the, the, you know, the ratio of PM to devs have changed over time too, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I think where we're at now is a little bit more towards what you'd expect and a little bit more traditional in the sense that like we're probably aspiring or moving, converging on a ratio of like 1 p.m. to call it 10, 10 yeah. developers and a, des- a designer or two or, or whatnot. And, and that's sort of like the, what we keep in mind from a ratio perspective. And, and what's interesting is... As what we, was it like when you started? Yeah. What was the ratio like when you started? <laughs> the ratio would have been uh, like one to a hundred. Yeah. Like it was... So, and, and, and it actually wasn't like, I don't want to even say like I was coordinating across a hundred engineers or anyone was. It was more like you coordinate with 10 mm-hmm. and then the other 90, they're doing it themselves. And that was what was amazing about Shopify was like, you, like we always said, you don't need a PM. Like that's what we told everyone. And in fact, we even created a role on a team called the champion. And the champion on the team is the person that's the heart and soul of that team responsible for the outcome of that project that they're working on. And it's a role you have, not a function that you are. So an engineer can be the champion for a project. A designer could be the champion. Someone in support could be the champion. So we sort of had this role, a hat that you wear that was our execution muscle. And PMs really came in when there was high complexity or lots of things at risk, or it's like a really big bet. And then that's when we need someone super focused on just like product strategy, bringing things together and simplifying the complexity of execution. So talk to me through the journey. What was, what was the most difficult about the journey, right? What was your biggest lesson? And maybe even, oh, you know, all these questions coming out of this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's start with that. Let's, let's answer that one. And we'll go back to, I guess, my, my second thought is like, I, I assume as you grew the PM organization or as the PM organization grew, that there was uh, a growing respect within the executives for the value that PMs brought to the table. You, oh, yeah. You grew the PM organization at least in ratio, a lot faster than dev has grown, right? Yes, yeah. So yeah, I think like... Those two things, you know, what, sure. what was the difficult lesson you learned as you were kind of moving up from an individual contributor to now running all of product? And, you know, how has the recognition of the value of product management taken place within Shopify? Yeah, it was hard at the beginning. I think that, you know, this is not an unfamiliar story to a lot of PMs, but when people don't know or haven't experienced working with the PM or, or, or let alone a good one, you get a lot of like, what are you doing? What do you do? Type questions from engineers or designers that when you join a team, like, why are you here? What do you do? And there's a lot of that. So there's a lot of skepticism about what we're even doing there. And if, and it's interesting because like I came around the time, like right around the IPO. So there's like, there's also this other thing, this current of like, is this just like, are we just becoming a big company now? <laughs> and now like, like management's being hired in or stuff like, like there's that whole sentiment that's happening. Right. And we frankly had to just earn the trust by being good. And I don't think there's any way around it. No one could have said, no, 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 no. You have to trust these people. No, 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 no. Like they're here for a reason. Like we just had to show our value. And our goal as a product management organization in the first year was that by the end of the first year, people without product managers on their team are going to ask for product managers. That's our goal. And unbelievably, that happened within like six months. It not, not universally, but we, we did have requests saying like, awesome. hey, I don't know what it is really that uh, uh, like exactly what the people are doing in product management. But it seems like the projects that have dedicated PMs or ones that are really vested in it, like that are, they're going well, right? And that they are things that we feel like everyone understands why we're doing it and it feels highly aligned. Like, 
can you help support us here? Because we're feeling a bit ambiguous here about what we're doing. And that's sort of how it started growing organically. So that was, I'd call that like the first year, first two. And then we're like, cool, okay, we got a bit of trust now. The executive team's really feeling like this is something worth scaling. So we started hiring more. And then it became really interesting because as we hired more, we had to ask ourselves, like what, now that we're at a critical mass, like what do we do between each other? Because so much of it before is like we were underwater in terms of our capacity to cover the whole product that, you know, we'd be on like what are clearly the most important things and then the rest, like we just let it happen, right? And I think like as we, we hired more and we developed more coverage around the entirety of what Shopify is doing, we had to ask ourselves, okay, what is our team's mandate now? Like, do we have a responsibility to only just work on our features or... If we have to do things across multiple areas, how do we operationalize that? Like, what is the, the product management team's outcome? Similar to like how engineering leadership would, you know, own maybe some of the overall infrastructure and architecture of how the system is built, right? And there are certain folks in there that are designing those things. So this is where we developed levels in the product management organization. I mean, there was always levels in terms of reporting, but sort of like levels and expectations of those different levels in terms of like individual contributor PMs that are typically running with one or a few teams responsible for outcomes of a feature or a single product. And then leads and senior lead PMs responsible for sets and groups of products thematically around an area. And then product directors responsible for basically, you know, business units of Shopify, so to speak. And then it all, like, the rest is really a scaling blur because we set that up after, let's say, two years, and that's when all Shopify just ballooned. Like, it's one thing to go from 500 to 1,000, even though that's a doubling, because you at least still know half the people. (laughs) But when you go from 1,000 to 6,000, you more often than not are interacting with people like once every six months or never at all. And you, you just, you don't know what's going on anymore. So that, and meanwhile, like we're shipping, like Shopify deploys 20 something plus times a day to production and we're growing really fast and customer requests are coming in and like things are going down and all these like, so it was just, it was just chaos for years. So it's, I wouldn't even isolate it to product management, but rather everyone in the company feeling the scale and feeling that the chaos. And we ask ourselves constantly, how long does it take to onboard into Shopify and become productive? And I think early on, it could take a month. Now it's probably going to take really like six to 12 months before you even know enough about what's going on around you to be able to say, to make a decision that's practical. And that's really hard for PMs because (laughs) that's what we're hired to come in to do, right? And so it it became a really interesting dynamic in our PM group where like everyone had imposter syndrome. Everyone felt like they didn't know how decisions got made. Everyone was figuring out like, oh, what universal framework could we have or processes could we have around decision making and about how to choose this feature over that feature. And we're trying to build a machine around it. But when you're moving that fast, what really matters more is, is judgment, actually. That's what I think I've learned more than anything over the years. Is, and that's such a 
difficult thing for product managers to get because we're always, we're like fairly hyper analytical, I think as a discipline. And we're always trying to like be very rational about why this and why this and have frameworks. And I, I mean, I write about a lot of frameworks too. So I'm like, I'm very much like, I think frameworks are a PM's, a PM trying to understand the world. <laughs> right. But what I found is that like judgment and nuance was what dominated the decision-making as we were growing really fast. So Brandon, what, what advice do you have for those junior product managers who, you know, kind of want to move their way up through their company? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's standard advice that would apply to not just PMs. It's just like really understand what your boss cares about, (laughs) really understand like the vision of the company. And I, I think for junior PMs, so I've done a lot of promoting and, and stuff like that of PMs and a lot of calibrations with other product leaders and things like that. And, and as a PM, I think you have to accept the fact that this job is really nuanced and gray. And I think anyone that's been a PM knows that that is true. And because of that, you have to also accept that the way that you get evaluated, the way that your impact is understood and described and measured is also nuanced. So what's important is to focus on the inputs as a junior PM and recognize like it's not always about the outcomes that you're actually creating. It's about how you're doing things. And that's a very hard thing to accept for people that need the feedback loop of like, I did X and then Y happened, I'm doing well. But what I look for in a lot of junior PMs when I'm assessing them is what context was available at the time when they made a decision and what was the decision that they made based on it in in isolation from what the outcome was and how did they go about doing it, right? Because 50% of a PM's impact at least is going to be how they work with others, how they work with stakeholders, but then also how they inspire their team that's building the thing. And so did you go about making a decision and then like not even explain the why to the team? or give zero context about like, say an exec sponsor, a stakeholder said, we need you to do this. And you just kind of name drop them and be like, they just said, we have to do it. Let's just do it. Like, like, I think like it's those types of things that I like to focus on a lot from a, for very junior PMs. And it is the foundation of you being a really good one for me. It's like your decision-making capacity and how well you work with others are like the two primary things that I, I am personally looking for. And for junior PMs, like I would really focus on being as world-class as you can in those two dimensions. Yeah. So take me through like the good decision-making, like an example of what a a good PM does on the decision-making side. I can, I think we can all come up with bad ones in a long list, right? For sure. So I wrote about this in, uh, in a post. I don't even remember what I named the post now. I think it's making good decisions or something like that. But the meta thing about good decision-making is like, do you even know about the magnitude of the decision you're making? And a lot of people gloss over that thing and they go right into like, I'm going to solve the problem because people love solving problems. But if the problem you're trying to solve or the decision you're trying to make in the grand scheme of things, isn't really even a big deal. Like it's not going to really change the outcome that much. Then if you spend a lot of time on it, even if you come to the right decision, I don't think that's good decision making. Right. If something is fairly immaterial, like if we're, if the team and yourself are wasting time talking about and debating and researching even, you know, should the button be blue or fuchsia or something like that, then that's lacking judgment about the magnitude of the impact of the decisions you're making. Right. 
What's more important is put all your focus into the decisions that have the biggest impact and make them as fast as you can. <laughs> like that is sort of like the dimensions which I look at it. It's like the quality of the decision, the speed you made it, and all of that in the context of how important it was. So that's why there is no one size fits all way to assess a decision. You have to break it down and understand like, did the PM understand how important this was to our, to this year's strategy? Like this was the number one thing that would make or break the strategy. And did they understand that, that that was the decision they were making? And then second to that, okay, given it is high importance in this case, did they really go and think about all the ways they could de-risk that decision? Not to 100%, because if you're trying to strive to make, like, uncover every single thing and get the perfect decision, you're, again, wasting time. Like, get comfortable making decisions with 70% of the information that is available. Because it's just, to get to 100% is going to take exponentially more time. So those, those are some of the, the ways I think about making good decisions. So you mentioned something, you know, you talked about how you wrote a post on this. So this is all part of your blog. It's a really awesome blog called The Black Box of Product Management. Lots of great content there. What inspired you to start that? Honestly, the raw reason I started it was, and this is true of almost every single blog post that I've written there, is like it was me figuring it out myself. So like as I became a working product manager, I'd start to like feel that there were patterns in the ways that I was making decisions that were, that proved successful. And for me, it's like when it's cloudy in your mind, it kind of just bothers you a bit. And a lot of the writing was just me clarifying my own thinking. Like I really believe in like the phrase, like writing is thinking. So the whole process of it, like the, the post that ends up there is a hundred, like a hundred edits in of me just like brain dumping and then re- reading it and being like, wait a minute, there's some incoherence in the way I'm thinking about this thing. What do I really think when that happens, et cetera, et cetera. And then that's where like the framework side start to emerge. It's like, oh, when I abstract what has happened over, you know, experience, there is pattern. There are patterns. There is a framework to how I'm thinking about the thing. It's just all happening in intuition really fast. And, and so that's what inspired the beginning of the writing. And what encouraged me to keep going is that people were reading it. I think that like that, that created an amazing feedback loop where like it resonated with some people. And I also felt that I was uniquely suited to write about product management because I had no idea about product management or tech or anything in my background. I was truly coming in like with the same context is as if I was going to tell you today, I'm going to go become a pianist or something like that. It was like true blank space to me. Like, what is this thing? So I felt like I had a decent objective view of like what it is I was doing as a product manager. And it seemed like that ended up resonating with other folks who were maybe feeling gray about what it is that they were doing. Because I think like the more classic, you know, PM routes that people were, were falling into, like, you know, you graduate in software engineering and you go into Google's APM program and you're right into a specific flavor and style of what is a PM that's high utilization in a company context like Google or Facebook or whatever it may be. But for me, I was just coming in from like, no one was even telling me what exactly my job was. And I sort of inferred it over time, just figuring out through experimentation what was useful to the team. So that's sort of when I kind of came up with that whole idea. It's, it's this whole discipline's a black box. I don't see anything or anyone talking about it in a generalized way that I think applies more universally to not just a company, but to the 
the commonalities across people with that title in different companies and particular and industries even. So, I mean, it's interesting how you got started in the sense that this is a way that uh, you're kind of coalescing your learnings or kind of thinking through how you're learning things and, and codifying that? 100%. So yes. you see a lot of people like, oh, you know, I'm going to write because I want to tell people how I did things. But this is actually part of the process of developing who you are as a product leader. Oh, 100%. It's like, it's funny. Like I always tell people, it's like the time you read it was the time I learned it. <laughs> right. Which is kind of like terrible to say too, because I think when people read it, they maybe infer it's, it's validity a bit too much. So sometimes I worry about that where it's like, it is just thinking and it's my expression of what has worked for me in the past. But I, what I always like to, or want to caveat, but I just can't because it makes everything read terribly. It's just like, this is only true for specifically me in the context that I am in, in the company, in the team that I am in, in the stage of the company that it's in. Like there's all these things that make the way I thought about it and what worked, work in those contexts. And, and if I could just sum up product management, is just like in one word, it's context. There is no playbook. There is only what is right for the environment you're in. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. We, I was talking about stickiness uh, the other night during a presentation, and, and I'm like, well, you know, there's Dow to Mal ratios and wow to Mal, and, and, and weekly to monthly, daily to monthly, weekly to monthly instead of using abbreviations. But really, it, it depends on your software, right? Because your social network, you want people logging in every day. That's great, right? You want that daily to monthly looking at, you know, as close to 100% as you can get. But if you're like tax software, for instance, you know, you have, a, you have people logging in every day, you got some serious problems. Yeah. So I, I felt like I was caveating a lot of the <laughs> time where I'm like, you know, this is important in context to who you are, right? So you have to figure out like what your, what your ratio should be and then measure the trend line of how you approach that, right? And, and, and it's like that. It's, that's one of the tough things about product management is there is a lot of context. Yeah. And it's, it's, not, it's not even that like, there's a lot of it. It's like context dominates what's actually happening. It's 90% context, 10% frameworks and tactics as a PM. <laughs> and, and so that's why like, it's actually that it was that notion that actually inspired me to write one of the posts, which was like the first principles of product management. Because I really was trying to ask myself, what could it be abstracted to? What could the discipline be abstracted to that is actually universal, despite any particular context? And that's when it came down to those two things I wrote in that post, which is your goal is to achieve the mission, whatever the hell that is in your context. And the way you do it is through other people. Like those are the only commonalities I could think about that are almost universally true for product managers. Can you repeat that for everyone? Just something else? Sure. The first is that your objective or your purpose as a product manager is to achieve the mission of the company, whatever that may be. And the second thing is you do that through other people. I think that's powerful. So talk to me more about that post, about that first principles of product management. Yeah, it was, you know, part of that, just what is going on? What am I doing? What are these other people doing? Like, what are the commonalities type of, you know, that gray nebulous thinking in my mind that needed to be expressed and almost like wanting to disambiguate all the frameworks and playbooks and rules of thumb that were and are propagating in the world, propagating in Twitter, like, oh, you know, like, just, just like you said, like Dow over Mao or whatever it may be, or like, here's the way to think about supply and demand in a marketplace, or here's how to think about platforms. And here's like a good framework for assessing PMs and all these types of things. And there's so much noise. And I always just felt like 
people are reading these things, not recognizing that fact that 90% of what makes this true is the context that it was written for. So what the hell could be universally true? And, and, and that was like the whole impetus of like, I want to write this thing and get people to realize that like product management is actually a super simple, simple thing too. It's in one way, extremely complex and impossible to describe because the actions that you do are never going to allow people to infer what the why behind it. Because the actions you do are completely contextual to your company, to the stage of the project you're in, to the people around you, right? So you can't actually infer it based on observing what a PM does. And that's why you always get that question, what do you do anyway? What does a PM do? And why it's so hard to explain it to your parents or whatever it may be. But then at the flip side of it is like, your job is actually so simple. It's like you're put there to work with a team and get them to get to accomplish the company's mission, whatever the hell it may be. And you know what? The rest of how you want to do that, you figure it out. And, and there's no right and wrong. There's just different approaches. So we, we, we see that a lot on Twitter, right? right? Usually around Thanksgiving or American Thanksgiving. I see it a lot on Twitter where people are like, I'm going home to my family. Now I get to spend all this time explaining what a PM does, right? How, yeah. how do you explain it to your family? Probably the, the simplest way I explain it to the family is like, I always say, hey, so you know like this app that you use on the phone? Like someone and some team had to build that and figure out that you wanted that. So that's what I do. I work with the team and we figure out what people want and need and then we build it. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, <laughs> so, you know, going back to the black box of product management, the, the blog, do you have a favorite post or if your favorite post is the first principles, what's your second favorite? I think my favorite is the first principles. Uh, my second, I'd say applying the applying leverage as a product manager is probably my second favorite. So talk to me about that post. Talk to our yeah. listeners about that post. Absolutely. So that post was just about this whole idea of like, of all the things that you do for a team, what is like uniquely high leverage for a PM to do? So if, I'll give a example, like in contrast to a different function. So if you're an engineer on a team, say you're the only engineer on a team, you're also a whole human. You don't just code. Like you can bring product thinking to that team. You can bring organization to that team. You can bring energy and inspiration to that team. You can design. You can do anything, right? But what do you uniquely do on that team that is super high leverage? You code, <laughs> right? So like, what is the equivalent of, for PM? And there of the, all the, the actions and things that we do, like managing the backlog, putting it in Trello, Jira, whatever it may be, running rituals, doing standups and the like. Often PMs find themselves doing those things because, you know, we can and we want to give as much bandwidth to the engineers and designers to do what's high leverage for them, right? Which is designing code. But we're not the only ones that could do it. We're just doing it because, like, it's the right thing for the team from, like, an optimization standpoint. But our actual unique leverage is that we're responsible for determining, like, what needs to get built and in what order, Right? And, and for me, I, I distilled that as like, what is the vision of the product that you're trying to build? And what is the strategy to, to get there? Which is really a different way of like strategy to just basically equals a plan to achieve the goal. So, you know, if the vision is you need this feature to be the, the best way for people to find, I don't know, new brunch spots, then what is the first thing you need to launch to achieve that vision? Right? Those are your decisions. Those are the big decisions that you're bringing to the team. But that was the whole point of the post, which is like, don't waste your time doing 
the busy work of backlog management and all these things that are the actions that we actually end up spending 80% of our time on sometimes, right? Don't do that unless you've for sure nailed the vision and the strategy because everything's for naught if you haven't done that well. Now, it sounds like your team spends less time on that backlog management than, say, an average PM team. Is that accurate? And, and if so, why? It is accurate. And why is a combination of, of we don't think it's high leverage for the team and B is because Shopify is such a great place where we can, where we have never said that the PM is the one that has to run the execution of the team, but rather the builders, the engineers, the designers, and this, this role, the champion in particular, is responsible for running the day-to-day, right? So we've sort of created a culture and an operating environment where PMs could actually like spend most of the time on the thing that they're uniquely contributing in terms of value. Now, going back to another thing you said in your answer or your discussion of the post is a little bit about order, right? I see PM struggling a little bit about order, right? It's one thing to understand what needs to be done. It's another to struggle through the order of doing that. Do you, do you have advice you give to PMs on, on how to, you know, order the kind of <laughs> put together the vision and the steps to the vision in an order that makes sense from a business perspective? Yes and no. I think like, so I'm going to start with the no, I don't. And the reason is because the answer to the order is all the context. Yeah. Right. So basically the, the, the simplest thing I describe is do the order that most quickly achieves your mission. <laughs> and, but in the context, like the tactics are in certain business contexts, there are factors that matter more than others. For example, if you're a startup that's going to run out of money in three months, you can't do anything that takes more than three months. <laughs> right. So don't put anything in the order that's going to take more than three months. And more importantly, do the things that get you your next fundraising or get you the revenue to survive. Yeah. And I think those constraints <laughs> are often a challenge for people, like understanding the constraints, yeah. not just within their product team necessarily, but the broader company constraints. Like you're exactly. talking about, you know, running out of cash or meeting revenue goals that establish credibility to raise the next round. You have to, you have, to have PMs that, that are very, um, aware and, and broadly tuned in. Oh yeah. I, I think like you can't really build a good product strategy without understanding deeply the entire company's overall strategy and, and business context. Yeah. And the business context, that's an important point there, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of companies do a disservice to everyone by not being as transparent as they need to be with those contexts. Right. And then, so then what happens is like you get in these weird situations where like the exec team is being or whatever leadership is being cagey about the fact that, Oh no, we need to hit revenue. And they don't express that root problem or goal to the team. And they just say, no, 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 you need to do this feature. Right. And I think that that's really disenfranchising to everyone. And it's also like, it's, it's, it's really just a waste of the talent that you've hired. So like for myself as a leader, like I try to be as open as freaking possible about what it is that matters. Sometimes money matters. Sometimes like, you know, safety matters. Sometimes like, it's just like, you got to be open because if people don't understand the why they disengage and worse than disengaging is that what they end up building is going to be wrong. (laughs) It's going to be wrong. And I think that's the funny thing about product is like, even as an intern product manager or a level one, whatever product manager, you do actually need to know the whole company strategy to make the right decision. 
Yeah, so transparency at a company level becomes extremely important then, correct? Yeah. And I thought that Shopify, that was another thing that is just incredible at Shopify. From day one, when you join the company, you can see daily revenue, customer churn, everything. Like as soon as you get your login, one of the onboarding tutorials is like, here, go to our data portal. And you can literally see like levels of information that like the CFO looks at. And it's amazing. And it's, it's, a, it's a privilege to get it. And it's like, you know, it's one of those things where it is something we maintain until it's too risky not to. But, you know, until something really forces us to do that, we want to be as transparent as possible because we, we need people to make decisions. We need to push decision making out, out to the fringes to where the work is happening. Awesome. So we're going to do something unique today, and this is part one of what will be two parts of the podcast with Brandon. So stay tuned next week for part two. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.